0: or you can click the link in the episode details below. Registration closes on June 1st. It is only open through May because we need the month of June to prepare everybody for July. I'm looking forward to this deep dive with you all. I'll see you there. Sitting in
1: these sorts of circles and being supported by facilitators of this work helped me be able to go back to the quote-unquote scene of the crime and develop a new relationship with the pain, develop a new relationship with the trauma and come forward as an adult with a different relationship, a different point of view and new techniques and thoughts about you know, what pain is, about what emotions are, about what sadness is, fear, shame, and all of those sorts of things and understanding that they are a part of the human condition.
0: Welcome to the Holistic Life Navigation Podcast, where we explore life through the lens of somatics. I'm Luis Mujica, a somatic educator who teaches people how to find safety in themselves. Your turn to learn begins now. I am so honored to welcome Elder Jackson, the third. I'm also a third to the podcast. Uh, thanks for being here, my friend.
1: Well, thank you for being here. Uh, thank you for allowing me to be here, and congratulations on being a third.
0: <laughs> we're, the, the, we're the third seed of our lineage, right? Um, yes. yes. I- I'm so excited to meet with you. Uh, two months ago, I saw the work for the first time. And I-, I don't remember weeping that much ever in a documentary. If I had, it's been a long time. Because what I was seeing was this sacredness of masculinity, you know, like reweaving from a place that had been violent or oppressive to a place that was nurturing And it was like only men could hold that kind of space for that kind of aggression in in that in that way that I saw that I saw being filmed. And I guess you're a bit of a mystery to me. That's why I wanted to speak to you. I don't know your whole story yet. Um, I was trying to understand by watching it. Were you an inmate at the time or were you going and working with them? Like, can you tell me a little bit about this?
1: Yes. I, I. At the time, I was living there. I, I was uh, uh, serving uh, a life sentence at the time that that was filled.
0: So, yes, I was a, a man on the inside. Oh, wow. Life sentence. So do you want to go into that? What what landed you there? Uh, well, uh, a horrendous
1: series of, of, of poor choices and uh, adapted life skills. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was 19 years old, I was convicted of attempted murder uh, kidnapping for purposes of robbery, and yeah, a string of other
0: robberies. And what? Just so people listening, because I I speak a lot about this about how trauma oh. mm-hmm. becomes you know criminal activity, and then we get incarcerated, mm-hmm. and then the trauma never metabolizes; mm-hmm. it just keeps recycling. What was your yeah. life like that led you to that point at nineteen? Like, what had you experienced? Mm, what had I
1: experienced okay so by the time I was convicted of that because that's kind of like the, the the middle of the road or three quarters of the way down the road I had already been incarcerated in juvenile prison a couple of times you know and, and and served a total of four years in in youth prison uh you know my life growing up prior to that you know from the outside looking in it was uh you know the prototypical uh, uh American household. it was uh excuse me for that it was uh you know a household with mother father sister brother uh my father was in the military you know i grew up with both parents in the household had the opportunity to travel the world was actually born in germany on a military base uh played sports growing up you know was a uh what they say was you know fairly decent athlete uh you know got mostly a's and b's in school And, you know, underneath the surface, as you say, trauma, where was their trauma, you know, besides generational stuff uh, at at a very young age, you know, during my uh, uh, seventh, eighth and ninth year on this planet, I was a victim of child molestation at the hand of babysitters. And I, you know, at that time, uh, and not many folks are, I was not equipped with how to deal with that. In, in a healthy way, in a good way. I didn't know how to uh, uh, share that experience with my parents. So they had no idea, you know, the first time they heard about it was in a visiting room in Folsom while I was serving life. Uh, and, you know, that child's mind, that little boy uh, uh, created beliefs, you know, about himself, about others, about the world, about dynamics of power, about violence, you know, about uh, uh, what love, you know, looks like or doesn't look like just all sorts of things that were created in the mind of a a very young child. And I continue to, you know, uh, uh, carry those beliefs and thoughts. And, And oftentimes I was able to play those things out on the sports field. You know, I was able to get my aggression out on the sports field. I was able to hide behind a persona and not allow people to see behind the mask to see who i really you know they saw oh, you know pitcher shortstop you know center fielder that's who i was you know in their eyes that's what i saw you know somebody who gets good grades scholar and uh there 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 was a summer where where that you know was taken away from me again based on choices me and a friend uh stole his mom's car and and you know took it uh, uh for a wild ride one evening and wrecked it when we were 13, 14 years old. And, and, and my parents didn't allow me to play a baseball that that summer. And, and by that time we were, you know, living the civilian life. I was living in Sacramento, California. This was the, the early to mid eighties and, you know, crack cocaine had by that time swept across the nation. Uh, you know, gangs had begun to uh, a peripheral, uh, proliferate all across you know California and across the nation. And so I I, I got in, you know uh, uh, that summer made choices to get into gang banging, which led to drug selling and, and gun running and all sorts of other things, in looking for a way to have respect in looking for another identity to hide behind, another way to not be seen
0: or to have control over what people saw. Yeah, like they saw one part, but they didn't have to see the other part. Yes, that's it. Yeah, what was the other part of you? Like, what would you call that now looking back? That other part, I would call it
1: a a scared little confused boy. And and that scared little confused boy, you know, uh, he was... You know, for lack of a a better way to describe it, he was who was running the show. He was who was driving, you know, the proverbial bus for me, yeah. you know, well into my 30s. You know, driving it from a place of fear, driving it from deep inside of 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 the trauma of the wound. So, you know, where I sit today, I can look back and articulate. Internally, that's what was going on with me. That was the driving influence. That was, you know, where a lot of my decisions were coming from, you know, and, and that's not to, uh, minimize the, the, the choices. Uh, it, it, it just, you know, gives some
0: insight into the thinking. That's right. That's right. I like that distinction. Um, uh, because sometimes we think, clarity and compassion removes accountability or responsibility. I find that it actually brings them closer together because then you you understand it and then you can affect change from that understanding. Yes. I'm trying to understand. I'm trying to be in your shoes. So you're 19. You get this conviction. You're told you're spending the rest of your life in prison. Mm -hmm. What was that like to hear that? Hmm. Well,
1: it was uh, for me, it was the next step in the life that i had chosen you know it was uh it was it, it was a harsh reality there was a brief moment of sadness and just as quick as the sadness came there was another part that was like okay there's no time for sadness no time to be soft now mm. motherfucker this is the yeah. life you chose stiff up get ready and go be the best damn convict you can be yeah and so like a light switch you know either going off or going on just that quick going from sadness and mourning the end of my life as I knew it and embracing
0: a new existence, which is, you know, uh, life in prison. Yeah. And that's, I'm I'm imagining this whole survival response turns on, you know, like you said, I'm going to be the best convict I can be. It's like you have to survive the life in prison. Well, yeah. So I'm so curious. And if Those of you that heard me say at the beginning, I watched this documentary, the work, we're going to get into what that all means in a moment, but tell me you're 19, how many years, like, what was the point where something started shifting inside of you before Mm. you started doing this, this therapy work in prison? Like, what was that like? So
1: I, 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 was arrested in 90, convicted and sent to prison in 91. And I started uh, doing the work that you see in the documentary in 2004. So 2004. I was, wow. I was 13, 14 years into my sentence. I mean, for the first dozen years, you know, I was doing the same thing in prison that I was doing out in the community that got me sent to prison. You know, I was still involved in gangs. I was still involved in the drug trade. I was still, you know, uh, uh carrying and trafficking weapons, assaulting people. I was still, you know, doing all of the same things. That you know uh, were a part of the lifestyle that I adopted, in you know uh, a furtherance of becoming the best convict that I could be. Because you know you use the word survive, and I may have used that, but for me it wasn't about survival. It was about how do I thrive in this environment? You know, I I I I can have a, an extremist personality, so it was never about survival. Because you know at that time my thinking, people who are just surviving are potential victims. Right. You know, not just in life, but especially in that, you know, hyper violent, hyper uh, 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 pseudo masculine environment. If you're just a survivor, you are a target. So, you know, my intention was to thrive and be, you know, uh, a predator, be somebody that was, you know, when you when you look across the yard and and you look at me, it's like, okay, I'm going to look for an easier win, that that's going to be a difficult one, so I'm going to look elsewhere. And again, that for me that was fear based, you know, not wanting confrontation, not wanting to have to, you know, deal with uh, situations like that. So it was a good 12 years uh, of of that same activity. And and what I can you know recall as the beginning of a turning point for me, because there was no all of a sudden aha moment where where I switched you know my life around or something. I was sitting in the hole. I was sitting in, 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 solitary confinement. And, uh, I was, I was on, uh, uh, you know, complete isolation status. They call it standalone walk alone. So I lived in a cell by myself. I went out to the little, you know, dog run by myself everywhere. I went, I was in shackles and waist chains and, uh, uh, handcuffs. And, uh, at that time, uh, there, there were two, uh, uh, convicts who were still in the, in the prison system, uh, one by the name of Charles Manson, one by the name of Sirhan Sirhan. And in my mind, those individuals were like monsters. They were, they were, you know, criminal demons. They were infamous. And, and I could see from my cell The part of the housing unit where they were and they were going out onto the yard with other, you know, people, they were allowed to be around other people without restraints. And and here I was, you know, in my mind, you know, a real nobody in, you know, the annals of California convict lore. And I can't be around other human beings. You know, Charles Manson was somebody who had just, you know, used his uh, art of persuasion to convince people, you know, to murder people. And here he was allowed to be around people and have access to, to, to his gifts, you know, his, his articulation and being able to whisper in people's ears, I couldn't be around other human beings. And so it started to settle into me that, uh, uh, something here is not right. Mm -hmm. Something about this picture just doesn't fit. And, and, and I started, you know, to take stock in, in, in where I had come from. And when I say where I'd come from, you know, thinking about my family and, and thinking about the, you know, so-called potential that folks used to talk about when they used to see me, you know, and speak about me in in my younger years and, uh, compare that to where I was at. And I was like, yeah, this, this shit's not working. I, I, I got to figure something else out. I got to do something else. I don't know what that something else is, but it's not this.
0: Yeah. So who who or what introduced you to this form of therapy and healing? How did that start? Well, when when I got released
1: from uh, administrative segregation, when I got out of the hole, uh, I I was sent from Corcoran prison to New Folsom prison, which is where the documentary was filmed. And that group had already been running uh, for several years. And on the inside, it's it's called men's support group or men's group. And, uh, you know, on the yard, it it had a reputation. Because if you're not in the group, you don't know what's going on in there. Nobody knew what was happening there outside of the participants prior to that film, you know, being made public. And so there was a lot of uh, 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 secrecy and mystery around what was going on in that chapel. Uh, The guards referred to the program as Hug a Thug. You know, uh, folks were talking about, you know, people are in there uh, uh, praying the candles. It's a cold. They're in mm-hmm. there singing, mm-hmm. holding hands and singing Kumbaya, you know, all of these sorts of rumors and innuendo that can pop up due to a, a lack of knowledge. Mm-hmm. and And so, you know, I heard all of that sort of stuff. I didn't put a lot of stock into it, but a lot of the guys that I saw that were, you know, consistently, you know, on a regular and consistent basis, going into that chapel when men's group was called were individuals that I were from, that I was familiar with on the yard and from other prisons. And, and I respected them, you know, as, as up convicts. And I could see something more. I could see mm-hmm. the way that they were carrying themselves had evolved Mm-hmm. the way that they were showing up, you know, in that community, in that space, there was something different. You know, they, they were men, they were grown men, you know, they yeah. weren't gangsters. They weren't convicts, you know, they weren't homeboys. They they were grown ass men and, and, and it showed. And so, you know, after a couple of years, two, three years and a couple of invites, I was like, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and try this out. You know, at worst, uh, I can just get up and walk away because can't nobody make me do nothing I don't want to do. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's how I I, I got in. You know, there was a, an associate of mine, uh, Dante, who actually sponsored me into the group and it's been a part of my lifestyle uh, ever since.
0: Mm. I, I just, first of all, love this. I speak about this with people when they always say, how can I make other people do, Like I have a course and I teach big groups of people. How can, I, how can I have other people do this? And I say, if you just do it yourself, Like Your behavior and your spirit and how you carry will ripple out and people will be attracted to it if they're ready. And that's a perfect example. You saw these men evolving over time and you felt a difference in your body around them that inspired you. Like, I want that for me. I love that. So tell us listening, people that haven't seen the work, what is this style of therapy? What do you do? Tell us how you hold space in these these prisons specifically.
1: Well, it is... First of all, you know, people call it therapy. It's, you know, evolved into being called healing circles and and, and all sorts of stuff. It, you know, for me and for the folks that that I know that sit in and on a consistent basis, it's just people sitting around telling the truth, learning how to tell the truth.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, it,
1: it is an opportunity for me to see other human beings and to allow other human beings the opportunity to see me and uh, and for me to get comfortable with talking about the places where I hurt so that hopefully they don't hurt as much. Mm-hmm. And hopefully I can grow to a place where from those places of hurt, I can learn to not hurt other people as a way to not feel the
0: pain. You right know, there. So if, if we that's want what to call that you. therapy, then okay. <laughs> that's what I wanted to ask you. I wanted to ask you that, that part you just said, like how does witnessing your own pain transfer into not inflicting pain? Mm. How is that for you? For me, it's about developing a
1: different relationship with the pain, you know, and not looking at it as something that was done to me so much as it was something that was done for me. Because for me, there is a learning, you know, I've gotten to a place myself where I can learn from anything. And I can turn anything into an advantage. I can turn anything into a plus, a positive, uh, an opportunity for growth. And so where I was, again, as a seven, eight, nine-year-old, my relationship with pain was I don't want to feel pain. And if there's situations where pain is involved and there are two people involved and I'm one of those people, I'm going to be the one inflicting the pain, Mm -hmm. not the one feeling the pain. So that was my nexus for dealing with pain and understanding pain and so sitting in these sorts of circles and being supported by facilitators of this work helped me be able to go back to the quote-unquote scene of the crime and develop a new relationship with the pain develop a new relationship with the trauma and come forward as an adult with a different relationship, a different point of view and new techniques and thoughts about, you know, what pain is, about what emotions are, about what sadness is, fear, shame, and all of those sorts of things. And understanding that they are a part of the human condition. It's not about trying to make them go away or disappear or not feel any of them. For me, it's really about not being with them and not allowing them to control how I show up. It's okay Mm -hmm. to feel. Mm-hmm. And I have a responsibility to be with my emotions and not allow my emotions to be my driving force, not allow my emotions to, uh, you know, spew out into the world and, and be something that, that, that brings harm to, you know, myself or other people.
0: It's so beautiful. I, I talk so much about self-relating and how transformational it is to have a relationship to self. And, and what you just said is why, you know, it's we are when we allow the emotion, you know, you don't bypass it. You don't have shame. You don't pretend it's not there. You allow it, but you don't allow it to take over. You relate to it. It's really like child. It's like being a parent. You're parenting these parts of yourself where it's allowed to feel the way it feels and you're not going to let it run your life because you're relating to it. Something in there kind of transmutes, doesn't it? Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. We call it uh, uh, in this work a uh, uh,
1: medicine. You know, laying right there next to the wound is the medicine. It's, it's just like, you know, a snake bite, you know, mm-hmm. is the best way to describe it. Get bit by a rattlesnake and they give you the anti It's made from rattlesnake venom. So laying right there next to the wound is the medicine. So it's a this, you know, work helps me go into those places where I'm wounded. And right there next to that wound, right there next to the discomfort and the pain is my own internal self. And it's about going in and accessing that and tapping into it and
0: learning how to utilize it for myself. So what I'm wondering, I'm imagining you in a circle in prison and Mm -hmm. you're surrounded by men. And up until this point, I'm assuming men were very dominant. You know, you're in gangs, you're in these situations where men took on a really kind of violent, dominant role with each other and Mm -hmm. others. What was it like to suddenly have these same kind of male bodies Holding space for what I'm assuming is you talking about like your molestation, your traumas, things that you you never really let yourself go into. Well, what was that process like for you mm. early on? What that
1: process was like for me was hmm, I'm I'm looking for words. Uh and and I, I when I say this, I, I don't say it assuming that everyone had the same experience. hmm the safety and warmth and nurturing of a womb. You know, when when mm-hmm. when when I think about my experience, you know, uh, inside of my mother, because my memory goes back very far. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, just the, the the warmth and and nurturing and love of of being held, safe and secure, and not having to worry about anything, knowing not having the answers about how it was happening but just knowing and being confident and comfortable and not having to think that everything is okay. Uh, that I don't have me to up. do anything but simply be. That's the best way that I can
0: describe it. That really lights me up because that's my experience in, in men's work I've done where these mm-hmm. bodies that in my past, you know, I have a lot of trauma with men. So having these male bodies transform into this really strong container that feels wound like there's this like masculine feminine that merges and it feels so healing and so safe i, I love that, that that happened for you and it, it that resonates for me that that happened for you because you were one of the men i was attracted to watching the documentary because you embody that i could see the way you were looking into the eyes of these other men there was this really you know sacred father mother in you holding this kind of like dual space which is it's like, to me, it's, it's shamanic, it's sacred, it's magical. And I, I loved watching that. So mm-hmm. kind of what you just said gives me some context to why I was seeing that come through you. Do you hold yeah. that space in yourself when you're with these men? Do you feel that consciously or is it not that way? For I, you? I, I wouldn't
1: say that I feel it consciously. What I can say is that consciously there is an intent for me to show up in a way that serves whatever's needed. Mm-hmm. and 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 to be open to you know letting you know my ego id whatever you want to call it get out of the way and let spirit come through and utilize me in whatever way is 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 needed in the moment so mm-hmm. you know the me that is there is the me that knows how to get the hell out of the way mm-hmm. and not muck the process up
0: mm-hmm. that's so wise yeah <laughs> <laughs> Well, what about, so tell us this, the, the, the pathway, you start this work in prison, you're obviously evolving, you're healing, you're getting more centered in yourself. Mm-hmm. Two questions, I'll start with the first one. What was it like to reemerge from these really vulnerable circle spaces into the more harsh landscape of prison? Like, how did you hold yourself through that? Mm.
1: So uh, for me, it was it was really just about being comfortable with myself. And, and going into those spaces with a, I, I guess the the, the the word would be self-confidence about I am who I am and, and, and I don't need any excuses for that. I don't need any mask. And, and that's not to say, you know, don't be safe, don't be aware of your surroundings, but my energy was different. The way that I carried yeah. myself was different. My mindset, my thinking was different. And so the, at least the environment that I was in began to shift, began to alter the relationships began to alter, you know, the people that I found myself dealing with more often, you know, was different and the, the energetic, you know, relationship there was different. And so there, there I, I was free, yeah. you know, I, I was, I was still inside. I was still serving life, but inside of myself where it matters, I was free. I was not incarcerated. I was not in bondage.
0: And, and so that's what it was like for me. I'm so happy to hear that because I, I speak a lot about finding safety inside yourself. Mm-hmm. And when we find safety in our bodies, it's what I'm calling safety. It's not, it's not dependent on safety outside the body, you know? No. So you're talking about, you're still incarcerated. You're still there. The landscape hasn't changed. The inner landscape has changed. So you're unaffected by the outer one, the same way you might've been before that. That's gorgeous. Exactly. Um, so how did that lead to then getting out of prison from a life sentence? Well, in California, they have
1: what's called, uh, when, when you have life with the possibility of parole, you go before a, a, a panel of governor appointed uh, individuals. Most of them have, you know, law and career law enforcement background. And, uh, you know, the best way to describe the process is, you know, you walk into a room, and you sit on one side of a table, they're sitting on the other side of this great big grand table. And you you talk about your life from the moment you, you know, uh, entered the earth until the moment you walked into this room. And, you know, the what the goal is, is for them to determine what they call parole suitability. And what that suitability, you know, in my mind looks like if I'm them, you know, trying to, you know, put myself in their position is what I feel comfortable with this individual as my next door neighbor. Mm -hmm. Knowing everything that I know about what they have done and what they are capable of, Would I be comfortable with this cat, you know, walking through the park that my grandchildren go to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I went to board three times. You know the first two times I was denied, the third time I was found suitable and 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 I, I believe the difference was, you know I, I I didn't go in to the room expecting to get out. Mm-hmm. I was just going in the room to talk to some human beings. I wasn't trying to get out. I wasn't trying to come home. I wasn't trying to be found suitable. I was just there being truthful and honest about who I was and where I was at and Whatever happens, happens,
0: which must have greatly impacted you know their their felt sense with you. I'm assuming. I I, I would assume so because they found me suitable for parole. <laughs> what was it like when you're when you're going in there? You're just the kind of relating to people. You're hanging out, and they say, oh, "Okay, yeah, you're suitable for parole." What would that feel like?
1: It was a uh, it it was a shock. It was a shock, and and there was the uh, the you know the gamut of emotions for me. There was there was you know underneath the shock, there was. There was joy. Of course, there was, uh, 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 you know, sadness, there was fear. There was, there, there, there was, there was, there was a little bit of everything, you know, mm-hmm. in that moment, it was just like surreal. Mm-hmm. Cause it, it wasn't something,
0: you know, that I, I expected. It wasn't something that I was looking for. And from that moment to actual release, how, how long was that? It was four
1: months because there's a review period. You know, they find you suitable, and then you know it has to go to uh, a full board hearing, which is like fifteen people. They review the transcripts. The, their legal team has to make certain that everything was done correctly. All of the t's were crossed, eyes were dotted. The governor's team has to review and and determine whether or not they're going to you know stand pat on it or whether they're going to reverse it. So, you know, there could be anywhere from four to five months, depending on the nature of the crime, before you are actually released. So, you know, that is a long
0: 120 days. <laughs> mm, yeah, I bet. I bet. <laughs> and what was the from the moment of conviction to the moment of release? How many years did you serve? Uh, 24 years. Wow. So 24 years, a decade of those doing this work. So mm-hmm. you get out and you're already rehabilitated on the inside. So was it easy to merge with life on the outside? What was the transition like?
1: Uh, for the most part, it was easy to, you know, make the transition to the outside because a lot of it is mindset. And then there are things where, you know, I, I, I'm still, you know, at this point, I'm 51, I'll be 52 this year. I have done more time incarcerated than I have done in quote unquote free society. So, you know, there is, there are aspects of, you know, being institutionalized. There are ways of thinking and habitual action uh, uh, that come up that, that, that I deal with daily. The transition for me is it continues, you know, and maybe it will continue because, you know, there are elements when you go deeper off into it, there are elements of, of, of PTSD, you know, different sorts of trauma, and 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 all of those things and the intention is to be with them to be with that you know reality and to continue to sit in these circles and do this work and heal and move through life
0: with purpose Mm -hmm. Mm. and positive intent so tell us what work do you do now like how do you do this work what does it look like Hmm. So the, the the work that I do now is no different than the
1: work that I was doing when I was sitting inside in these circles. Now I am co-executive director of Inside Circle, which is the nonprofit that supports that work. Uh, I now go back inside of prisons, New Folsom being one of them. Uh, we go into uh, several other prisons in California on a consistent basis. We uh, uh, go into high schools and do this work. Uh, We go across the country, Uh, you know, we're in Dallas, we're in Memphis, Tennessee, we're in uh, uh, all of the juvenile facilities in the state of New Jersey. We're in Brooklyn, New York, working with the district attorney's office. We are in San Francisco working with the district attorney's office. Uh, We go into corporations and do this work with C-suite officers It's, you know, people see the documentary and they're like, oh, my God, that's a uh, insanely transformational prison program. The the film just happened to be, you know, uh, captured inside a prison. This is human work. This is work that all of the billions of people on the face of this big blue marble can benefit from, you know, partaking in, in my humble uh, opinion. Yeah. So you go anywhere. This work goes anywhere it calls you. We, we go all over the place. Just last week, we were on a, a, a Zoom call at, you know, it was 1 a.m. Pacific time. We were in New Zealand with some men who were uh, screening the documentary and getting ready to go into a weekend of men's work. And that was how they were kicking the weekend off. So, you know, we were sitting uh, with them doing a QA and a and sitting in circles to, you know, help
0: support them. So, you know, we're, we're doing this all over the globe. I feel so satisfied. You know, I'm curious if there's anything you want to add that we didn't go into that you want people to know. Mm,
1: I think the only thing that I would add that I haven't specifically said we haven't specifically covered is uh, the encouragement for people to, you know, trust and believe in themselves and, 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 and love yourself. You know, when I love myself, then I am able to teach other people how to love me. I'm able to teach other mm. people how to be in relationship with me, and I am able to be receptive when people are communicating to me how they need to be treated and how they want to be loved. So, 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 love yourself. Invest in yourself. If you don't do anything else in this life,
0: invest in yourself. Beautiful way to close, Elder Jackson the i I'm so. So grateful to have this time with you and I'm so happy to share you with my audience. Thank you, for, just thank you for your life and your wisdom and what you're sharing with us. Thank you for inviting me in. It's been a wonderful conversation. Ooh. That's the end of today's episode. Now let's take a moment to notice where we feel the episode in our bodies. Close your eyes. Take a breath. And let whatever wants to come up, come up. And remember, those sensations hold the wisdom that we're looking for. If you want to go deeper, visit HolisticLifeNavigation.com. Did you know your food cravings are actually a doorway to your subconscious? They are. We tend to see cravings as something bad or something we just give into to mindlessly. But when you embody your cravings, you're able to notice they're just blossoming from a certain place that has a certain need and needs your attention. Join me on Wednesday, May 29th, as I unpack this in a new webinar called Cravings Destigmatized. In this webinar, I'll help you learn the difference between a nutritional craving and an emotional craving as well as how do we use cravings to get in touch with our unmet needs and any of our unconscious, unprocessed emotional experiences. It begins at 4 p.m. Eastern, and everyone who registers will get a replay. You can find the link in the episode details, and you can also go to www.holisticlifenavigation.com and click on events, and the information is right there. Hope to see you there.